If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our study of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, these ten sayings for the life of God's people. And we have been glorying in the truth that the law is righteous and holy and good. And yes, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. But as he forms his heart in us and gives us grace to become like him, he empowers us to obey his righteous commands. And so it's with joy that we get to stand in honor of the reading of God's word if you are able. And our reading is very short for today. We're in Exodus chapter 20. You can look with me at verse 13. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gift of your holy word. And there are many who hear this command today and wonder how we're going to make this relevant to their life. And we thank you that the word is profitable uh, for training and for reproof and Um, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. So would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying by your good command and help us to listen with faith and with a resolve to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I read a story this week in the late 1990s, an English trader named Michael Hodge moved with his family to South Africa And he did so to pursue his dream of making a business out of his love for lions. And you can't doubt that this guy loved lions. I mean, they bought lions as pets, and um, one of the lions co-slept with him and his wife. I don't know how you guys feel about co-sleeping. Babies aren't even allowed in our bed, okay? So I cannot physically imagine going to Kayla and being like, hey, babe, I got like this new lioness, and I'm wondering if we can have her with us in the bed. I mean, this lioness is like licking him in the face in the morning and all kinds of weird stuff. So in 2008, he got a new lion cub named Shamba. And with, along with these other lions, he bottle-fed Shamba and raised him and had this safari that they opened up in a full functioning business. But lions are lions. And so you know, when he would get out of the safari cage when they were done giving tours, he would have somebody distract the lions and then he would make his exit because even bottle-fed lions, you know, you just don't know. Well, until one day in April of 2018, when Shamba just mysteriously all of a sudden turned on him, grabbed him by the neck and drug him like a rag doll into the bushes. And immediately the lion was shot and killed and he escaped with severe lacerations and a broken jaw. Other people who have attempted to own lions were not so fortunate, and I read about them this week too. But I doubt that many of you are surprised when you hear, okay, he had a pet lion for 10 years, and eventually that went bad, right? I mean, more so, you're probably thinking, why in the world would you let a lion in your bed? And I'm surprised this didn't happen to you earlier. But what happened to Michael can and should be expected by any who seek to tame what is deadly. And we should expect the same if we seek to tame sin instead of putting it to death. 
Now, it sounds so crazy when you hear about him having a pet lion, but how many of us are prone to seeking to manage sin instead of mortify it? When we seek to, maybe you have some besetting sin in your life. It's plagued you for so long, and you thought you'd never gain victory over it. So what you've sought to do instead is to tame it and put it on a leash and manage it and not feed it too much so it doesn't grow too big to overpower you completely. Or maybe you've made peace with your current level of victory or lack of victory by comparing yourself to others or even comparing yourself to previous versions of yourself, right? I have more victory than I used to in this thing. I have tamed this beast more than it was. I know it's bad, but you should have seen the stallion that it was before I kind of got this under control. Now, I mentioned this in the prayer. You may hear, don't murder and think, man, I'm off the hook today. Or you may have been thinking about murdering somebody and be like, whoa, I'm on the edge of my seat today. But one thing that we'll see this morning is that murder is a lion full grown. And God's commandment to us this morning prohibits not just the lion full grown, but the lion in cub form. And so we continue to ask, like we have with each of Jesus's commandments, or the the Ten Commandments, how should we understand and honor this commandment today? So first, just take it at face value, the first kind of heading of our time together, you shall not murder. In the Hebrew, these um, don't commands are even shorter. It just says not murder, okay? So real simple, don't kill people. Now, we see in God's word that God alone gives life and God alone can take it. He says as much in Deuteronomy 32, 39, I kill and I make alive. There's no God besides me. And so at the bottom, murder is a functional claim to deity. You are claiming to have God-like authority over life. But murder is a ghastly sin, not just because we seek to be like God in taking life, but because of the incredible value and dignity that God has put on every single human being that he has made in his image. So we see this very clearly in Genesis chapter 9 when God is giving Noah commands at the start of the new world. And he says to him, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So God issues this ultimate capital punishment for the crime of murder because God created every single human being in his image. And that means that they were created with the capacity to worship him and they were made to reflect him and his glory in the world. And so murder is exalting self over God and over your neighbor. You're taking the life away that God gave to them as though you were co-equals with God and you were going to remove the life that only he could give and only he could take away. Now this very specific language in this commandment actually broadens what we might think of when we say don't murder in the sense that it includes not being negligent in things that would lead to killing, and it's probably more narrow than you would think if you just heard, 
don't kill. So you know how if you're listening to an audiobook, you might like speed it up a little bit? I'm going to do that right here because this is not the main part of where we're focusing on, but I feel like you need this if you're going to understand what this command is saying at the bottom. So very quickly, brief notes on what murder is not. The word used in this sixth commandment is never used in laws concerning the legal system or warfare. And so we see from Genesis chapter 9 and elsewhere throughout the law that capital, mu- capital punishment administered by a just government is not murder. But it is the just penalty of, for those who have violated God's law where he has prescribed death as the penalty of that. So God says, if you take a life, then it will cost you your life. And a government who enforces that is not killing people unjustly. It is just recompense for their crime. In the same way, this law does not forbid killing in just war that's necessary for the defense of peace and what is good. Um, The best summary I read in a commentary this week is that Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with force proportional to the attack against men who are soldiers, not civilians. So you can go listen to that again if you need more clarity. This is not individuals being vigilantes and forcing justice on their own. This is waged by just governments as little as possible against soldiers in order to promote peace and life. You can also see in Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, If someone had to kill someone in true self-defense, it would not be considered murder according to God's law. But that very language says, look, if if the son comes up, he did it anyways, it wasn't necessary. It could have gone to the authorities. It wasn't necessary for true self-defense. Then at that point, it is murder. So the common thread in all of these instances, capital punishment, just warfare, or true self-defense is that the goal is for the preservation of human life, not for destruction. Now, this command not to murder in the sixth commandment does encompass death that results from negligence or recklessness. So you can see this in the next chapter, Exodus chapter 21, verse 28 through 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So listen to what this command is saying. This is not talking about, this is not only relevant to those of you who have oxen at home. This is talking about general equity from this passage would say an accident is one thing. Requisite care to love your neighbor and to do what is necessary for their life and flourishing is another thing altogether. And if we were to consider this law and abide by it, what we're saying is maybe you don't have oxen, but if you had some kind of issue at work where you knew something was not up to code and you had been warned against it and it was a real safety issue and then somebody had an accident because of that very thing and they died, according to this law, it should cost you your life because you were responsible for the death of that person. Or if you get into your car and you're drunk and you're driving and you cause a car accident and somebody dies, it should, under just government, cost you your life, a life for life. 
So the sixth commandment prohibits any and all unjust killing of innocent human life by action or by inaction. So this prohibits suicide. It prohibits abortion. It prohibits euthanasia. It prohibits not addressing code issues, and it prohibits medical malfeasance that could lead to death. Any and all unjust killing of an innocent human life by action or inaction is a violation of the sixth commandment. So let's go now to Genesis and to Jesus to gain a deeper understanding of the seed of murder. So we've seen the lion full grown, but where does this start? What does the lion cub look like in your life? And to help with that, I want to go to Genesis chapter 4. It's an account of the very first murder. Now we know that when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, God clothed them with animal skins because what was necessary to atone for their sin was the substitute of a blood sacrifice in their place. And they knew that. And so in Genesis chapter 4, we observe that Cain offered the best of what he could produce. His sacrifice to God of his fruits and his produce represented the best that man could do. And Abel made a sacrifice from among his flocks. And the Bible says that God had regard for Abel and his offering and not for Cain and for his. But it's very clear that God's regard for them came not because of Abel's worthiness or because of Cain's unworthiness, but because Abel offered a sacrifice that was in keeping with what God required as a token of the Christ who was to come. And God tells Cain, if you do well, will you not also be accepted and received? So look with me at Genesis chapter 4, and we'll pick up in the middle of verse 4. It says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. And we know that Cain did not master the sin that was crouching at his door, but just a few verses later, he kills Abel. So what you see is Cain is very angry, and that unchecked anger grew into a murderous rage, and he killed his own brother. So stick a pin in that. Be thinking of that as we turn now to Matthew chapter 5, where again, just like with the other commands, we see the Lord Jesus deepen our understanding of what is meant by this commandment. As with the other laws, Jesus confronts the religious leaders and their tradition and the way that they aimed only at the outer shell of a law instead of the soul of it. And so in Matthew chapter 5, in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, in verse, we're going to be in verse 21 and 22, Jesus speaking to the crowds, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's what we've just seen this morning so far. And then he says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So I want to step back 
and have these words of Christ sink in for you. He says that murder in your hands begins with hatred in the heart. And that this anger toward your brother makes you guilty of, the sixth, of breaking the sixth commandment. That when you have wrongful anger in your heart, you have committed murder of the heart. And this is where we see, just like with Cain, that there's this clear connection between anger and murder. Um, before studying this text, the way that I thought about it was that anger and murder are of the same species. So in our example, that they're both feline. But after studying more, I realized these are not the same species. This is the same animal. This is the animal in lion cub form versus the animal full grown. And anyone who is wrongfully angry is guilty of the sixth commandment. And I say wrongfully because we know that there is a right kind of anger, that God gets angry every day against sin and against unbelief and against injustice in the world, against violations of his glory, and that if we're to be like God, then we will be angry with him over the things that anger him. We see this with the Lord Jesus in his righteous anger against all the uh, charlatan, charlatan, you know, selling of things and making a business of his father's house. And he goes through and he creates a cord and he actually drives people out with a whip. That's angry. And he was rightfully so. Our salvation consists of the fact in the truth that Jesus never got unrighteously angry, but he did get angry. So it is right. If, if anger is kind of an internal sense of a perceived injustice, then it is right to get angry against the oppression and against the wickedness that is in the world, against God's glory being dragged through the mud, against the indoctrination of our kids in the schools, against violence and bloodshed of the innocent and the unborn. Anger is an appropriate response. But we are so quick to weave in our unrighteous and wrongful anger even into that righteous anger. We read about this this week in Psalm 106, if you're doing the reading plan. Um, God, the psalmist is recounting of uh, the people angering God at the waters of Meribah, and it says that the people angered God and Moses spoke rashly. So Moses felt God's anger with him, but then Moses sought to take the anger of God and bring vengeance into his own hands and to resolve his anger in his own strength. And so we have to remember that Jesus says if we're wrongfully angry against others, then we're guilty of murder in the heart. James chapter 1 says it this way. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So that's what I want to do in the balance of our time together is how can we together right now receive with meekness the implanted word so that we can go from being quick to speak and quick to anger, short fused, to actually coming up with a battle plan for how do we fight this infirmity in us because we all struggle with it. I read this week that David Pallison in his book Good and Angry has a title, a chapter that's titled something like 
do you have an anger problem? And it's like the most creative chapter ever. It consists of one word and it says yes. And you turn on, it's like the next chapter. Okay, so, so you do. We all have this problem and some of us struggle with it more than others. Um, but how do we understand anger so that we can master it? Well, later in that same letter, James writes in chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. So if you want the Bible's answer of, all right, why do you murder? The answer is, you want what you want and you don't have it. Now, if you take this, that kind of uh, anger is kind of this perceived injustice. So it can have this appropriate outlet. And then uh, when we are wrongfully angry, what that actually is, is a perversion of justice. Where all we're really consumed with is what is, what I think to be just for me, right? I'm, I'm questioning, is this fair? Is it, I want to be proved right. Uh, I want to be on time. I want to be treated with respect. I want to be appreciated. I wanted to be treated with kindness or honor. Um, I want my life to be easy. I want my kids to give me unquestioning obedience at all times and be perfect. Uh, I, I want my wife to respect me and uh, just always think that I, she loves hearing what I have to say and I never talk too much and she just loves hearing from me and it's all good, right? I, I want all these things. I want people to be happy with me. I want the praise of man. You can fill in the blank. What are your things that you want what you want? And when you don't have those things, then the anger starts to stir. And if it's untended to, man, that thing can stoke. And all of a sudden, people may not even see it on the outside, and you're fuming on the inside. And I have found that for most people, and particularly for men, I think, is that it is easier to feel angry than sad. And so we go that route. If you have these kind of, uns, you know, no man wants to be like, you hurt my feelings, you know, so I'm just going to go put my, whole, my fist through a wall instead, right? Because I don't want to talk about feelings, I actually work through these things, because sadness doesn't feel good. But anger, strangely, does. feels great. And so I'm going to go give vent to all my frustrations and all of me wanting what I want. But at the bottom, brothers and sisters, it's unbelief in the sovereignty and the providence of God who is over your life and is orchestrating everything for your sanctification in Christ and your growth. So all these things that are not going your way are actually in the hands of a sovereign God who loves you and has promised that he's working every single thing for your good and for your conformity to Christ. So our anger is actually an objection to God and his providence and his ways and saying, I do not like your timing. I want your place. And anger at the bottom is saying, I want my will to be done and my kingdom to come here on earth instead of heaven. So if we're to heed God's words to Cain and treat them as words to us, anger is crouching at your door. And you must master it. 
Its desire is contrary to you. It's contrary to your life. It's contrary to the kingdom of God. And if you do not master it, as with Cain, it will kill you or people around you. And unchecked or unrepented of, it will lead you all the way to hell, Jesus says. So we must rule over it. How do we do that? How, how do we rule our spirit or master our desires? Proverbs 16, 32 affirms this same commandment. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You want to be great? God describes himself as this glorious passing before Moses in the most repeated verse in all of the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. What's the next line? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Your God is merciful and he's patient. And in ourselves, we are nothing like him. And this whole sanctification project in your life is meant to renovate you from the inside out so that we trade out what is unchristlike for what is truly of him. And it comes only by God's Holy Spirit. So I think this starts by you asking these questions. So I want you to write this down and actually do this. What are the desires that drive your anger? What do you want? What are your expectations? Now, I know that you don't get angry because Christians don't get angry. We get frustrated. So if you want to trade out what makes you frustrated, okay, then maybe you're like, nothing makes me angry, Ben. And I'm like, all right, well, then what makes you frustrated? You're like, all right. You need to write these out. Because if you have no plan, you're just going to get eaten alive. You need to know where are your weak points? Where are you prone for the enemy to attack? And he actually has inroads into making you fume because you don't really care about this thing. So you have this wrong view of your own righteousness here. But as soon as this line gets crossed, then I'm angry. Then I will take the place of God in my life. Then I will doubt God's providence and I'll step in. So I'm going to do this too. So I have a problem. I get angry. I get frustrated, right? That's how it comes up in accountability. I got frustrated this week. We need to master ourselves by the strength that God gives you by his Holy Spirit. And so he has given you his spirit and his word in order to sanctify you in his truth. And so that is what James has given you, this twofold. It's not trite. It's, it's our means of growth and sanctification in the Lord. He says, what do you need to do? You need to be slow to anger. How do I do that? Receive with meekness the implanted word. You have no shot apart from the sword of God's spirit entering into your word, being united with faith and actually changing you. But he also goes on to say in chapter four, you don't have because you don't ask. Your prayerlessness is a huge key to all your frustrations in your life. So you're resolving to take into your own hands all that you don't ask for, but if you spent as much time praying over your children as you did getting angry with them, they might actually obey and be different. Or you might actually have grace to parent them with patience and kindness. And so he gives us this, look, get deep in his word and let his word get deep into you. And then you walk by his spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, 
the fruit of God's spirit in your life are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so if I'm not seeing these things in my life, am I walking by his spirit? Now, we're going to fail in these things, but making a list of where your weak points are and what your expectations are and what you want and where you're prone to get angry, then allow you to bring them for the Lord and invite his spirit into those places so that you know, all right, I'm ready to go. I've, I've got these scriptures about anger on an index card in my back pocket. And when these moments come up, I'm pulling them out of the back pocket. I'm reciting scripture. I'm praying. I'm pleading with the Lord. Please rescue me from my anger in this and replace it with your love. And that's where I want to close is that the sixth commandment stated positively is to love your neighbor, to give life. We see this um, throughout the commandments that in each negative commandment given, the Lord affirms and commands the positive aspect of that commandment. So the righteous opposite of what he commands against. So in this case, the command is not fulfilled merely if we abstain from murdering people, but the command is actually, I want you to value life and do not just not do what is injurious to your neighbor, but I want you instead to love them and care for them and do what will give them life. And so this is what John says in 1 John chapter 3. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So in this is love. The Lord Jesus laid down his life for us. We heard it, brother, in your uh, reading of the law and the prayer of confession, that when reviled, Christ blessed. He did not, he did not uh, get in his flesh and get angry with people. He continued entrusting himself to the true and righteous judge and to his father who cared for him. And he walked in step with God's Holy Spirit, always bearing the fruit of the life of God in him. And to deliver us from our anger and all the other sin that separated us from the father. Jesus subjected himself to the hatred and the murder of man. He did so so that his blood could speak a better word than the blood of Abel for ruined sinners. So that when we fail in this, and you will fail this week in this, you're, you're going to hear this, you're not going to remember this sermon at all until you get angry and you're going to be like, I blew it again. And what you do in that moment is huge. You're going to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He never sent and he abstained from anger so that when you fail you can go to the throne of grace for mercy and for help in time of need and you confess it as sin and by God's grace it, sin becomes exceedingly sinful to you and all of a sudden anger is not just like oh man I just have some problem with this but I'm, I'm trying to tame it I'm not as angry as I used to be but you're broken before God because you realize God, I'm trying to be you. 
and I'm usurping you and your authority. I'm ruining my life and the life of people around me. I am against people that you've made in your image, and I repent. But we have a merciful and faithful high priest who not only has atoned for your sin and when you confess it cleanses you and forgives you, but he actually has lavished his Holy Spirit on you to give you the strength to actually walk by faith and to actually be patient, to actually be kind, to actually be merciful. And if he does, you need to know it will be a miracle. It'll be a miracle. And some of you may have made peace with anger because you feel like it would be a miracle for you not to be angry. And so you need to recognize that and say, yes, it actually will. It would be a miracle for you to forgive that person. It would be a miracle for you to walk in love and for your life to be defined and marked by love instead of anger. But by God's grace, he's committed to producing that in you as you yield to him. So I want to read you this passage in closing as a kind of summary passage and commendation to you for further study. And that's from Ephesians chapter 4. And we are headed right from here into baptisms. And so um, as I pray, if you need to sneak out and um, grab your kids from the children's ministry, um, you can. But I want you to listen to this first. And I'm reading this and praying and we're done. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through uh, 27, and then again 29 through the beginning of chapter 5. I commend to you for further study, even to committing to memory. If this is something that you are praying and longing for God to do in your heart. But it encapsulates a lot of what we've covered this morning. In verse 26, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Be angry and do not sin. So there you go. There is a way of being angry with God that is not sinful. But do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So it's not enough just to not tear people down, but actually speak words that give life. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, how can we rejoice enough in the gift of Christ, our salvation? Lord, you are so good in that you are tempted in every way that we are and yet Lord Jesus, you never got wrongfully angry even one time. We can't make it through the rest of the day. So we bless your name, Lord Jesus. We exalt your worth and your sufficiency and your righteousness. We declare that you are glorious. And we are so grateful that you loved us and gave yourself up for us. 
And we ask, Father, that as a church, as you wrote these things to the Ephesian church, so now you write them to us. Would you give us grace to put away anger in all of its forms and to put on hearts that are quick to forgive and quick to love and be gracious to one another and to be kind and tender-hearted and to imitate you, not in order to become beloved children, but because by Christ we have been made children by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is an unmerited, lavish gift. Lord, give us grace to live grateful and godly lives as we seek by your word and by your spirit to be made like you. In Jesus' name, amen.